I've had to hire a large team. I have to close business deals. I've had to fire people when it was not, things were not working out mutually. I've had to scale fulfillment centers, do things like pick, pack, and ship. I've had to do a lot of things and learn on the way and figure it out. And they were all, none of these were things that were taught to me during college or anything else. These were just things that I had to pick up building the business. And so I think having founder mindset is incredibly useful, not just in what you do next professionally, but also also in your everyday life on a personal front. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Arthi Ramamurthy. Arthi has had a diverse, challenging, and impressive career. She has been a product manager at Netflix, Microsoft, and Facebook. She has founded and sold multiple companies and been the head of international expansion for Clubhouse. In this conversation, we talk about tech, we talk about media, we talk about optimism, and how that translates into building companies and being a parent. Wide-ranging, incredibly insightful, and heartwarming. Here is my conversation with Arthi Ramamurthy. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Marcy, thanks for coming on Going Deep. I'm excited to be talking with you. Aaron, thank you so much for having me today. So uh, you have a intimidatingly large and uh, impressive resume of accomplishments. We're going to try to summarize them quickly here over the course of the intro and as we jump into it. But uh, one of my kind of first questions here was coming out of Y Combinator with uh, one of the two startups that you've built, Lumoid. Um, when you came out of Y Combinator, did that feel, how did that feel substantially different than the experiences that you had had in some of the world's largest technology companies like Netflix and Microsoft? Oh, wow. Great question. What a great first question. First of all, thank you for having me. I just wanted to say, I listened to your episode with Sam Parr and I feel like I have the opposite problem as Sam. He's got an annoyingly easy name to pronounce minus like incredibly hard first and last name. And so I feel like you didn't even ask me how to pronounce it. So thank you. You've just, you've just done a, you just got it right off the bat. So well, the beauty of you having multiple shows that you, that you do is it's been pronounced. I've listened to it. I've made sure to internalize it. Um, and I, I hopefully will not embarrass myself and put my foot in my mouth here later in the conversation. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Awesome. Um, you know, you talked about Y Combinator, uh, you know, before YC and applying to YC, I'd worked at Microsoft for six years, um, almost. I worked at Netflix, uh, and my job there was to build a Netflix streaming player that goes into TVs and set-top boxes and Blu-ray players. So by then, I had this confidence that I, I knew how to build things. And then I went through YC, and it was humbling. It was three months. Um, you kind of start from scratch. You're building this company by yourself. And I had to learn everything from incorporating the business. Uh, and so all the, the legal work, uh, what it actually took, like equity stake, uh, who gets to invest, like how do you fundraise, uh, and uh, you know, writing together, putting together a pitch deck, preparing for demo day, but also talking to your customers. Like you're basically um, the CEO, the CFO, the CMO, um, the product manager, the marketing person, like everything all rolled up in one uh, for the three months. And you're first like trying to get this company off the ground, find your first set of users, 
go pitch your company to investors, get them to invest in you and do all of this together and also attend, you know, Y Combinator has these things called office hours. So you go back to the partners and tell them your progress weekly. And, you know, in my batch, we had companies like DoorDash and it was incredibly intimidating and humbling to be there because you're at the startup that's in the same batch as DoorDash, which, you know, is incredibly successful, went on to go public and all of that. Um, and so I learned a lot. I thought it was a great experience. This was 2013. Um, just felt like it felt like a crash course, like a college crash course almost and like building a company. So for folks who are like building a tech startup as such, I would highly recommend going through Y Combinator if you get in. And I'd be curious about your just overall sense of like ownership and accountabilities. You know, the example with that YC and those weekly check-in meetings uh, is, is a highly uh, accountable act, but I'm sure you're accountable mm-hmm. to all sorts of stuff as a, as a product manager at Netflix and uh, a product manager at Microsoft. But ownership in the sense, like you said, you have to not only own all these roles, but do a sufficient job so as to not have everything blow up. And I'm curious about carrying that then on with you uh, in roles that you've had at Facebook and Clubhouse. Is that a kind of standard that was now set or was part of the attraction of going to those other roles. Hey, maybe I just get to dial that back a skosh and exhale from the kind of startup intensity. Oh man, that's again, you know, I think uh, a lot of people don't know this, but on my monitor uh, every day I come in to work and I have this ticker, this post-it and it says founder mindset. And I truly believe in that. And, you know, I've started two companies um, and I think once you're a founder, I feel like you're always a founder and it never quite leaves you. Um, You look at it, you kind of take it on as, it's your problem to go solve, whether or not you're responsible for solving the problem. Um, And so I think that really helped me later on when I worked at Facebook, now Meta, um, and then at Clubhouse. uh, And I think having that founder mindset or ownership mentality, I think really helps you with life as well, uh, because it helps you have more confidence that you've got this, like you've kind of been through a lot as a founder. Um, You know, I've had to hire a large team. I have to close business deals. Um, I've had to fire people when it was not, things were not working out mutually. Um, I've had to scale fulfillment centers, do things like pick, pack and ship, uh, deliver products to customers on Christmas day so that they don't, you know, miss their Christmas gifts to whoever they're giving it to. I've had to do a lot of things and learn on the way and figure it out. And they're all None of these were things that were taught to me during college or anything else. These were just things that I had to pick up building the business. And so I think having founder mindset is incredibly useful, not just in what you do next professionally, but also in your everyday life on a personal front. And is there any way that, you know, looking back, you, you know, you, you got the master's in software engineering, you were this product manager in these other roles. Is there any way looking back that you could have acquired that founder's mindset without going off and setting your own thing? If someone was like, is there, is there any other way to skin that cat? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know enough to know if there are other ways, but just looking at my path and my journey, Um, You know, Microsoft, when I joined, was a 100,000-person company. And so you are seven, eight levels removed from the CEO. Um, And so basically, every meeting you are in, like I was a junior product manager, um, there are so many people who've been there for 15, 20, 30 years even. um, And it's just 
really intimidating because how could you possibly, you know, be smarter than them? Um, and how do you, you know, all you can do is like hope that you can learn from them because they're super smart. They've been here longer and they've just built so many more products. Uh, and so um, coming in, you don't quite have that ownership mentality because a lot of the problems that you see for the first time, everybody else has seen it many times before. Um, and uh, they know how to solve it. And you're probably just learning. Um, and Netflix was much smaller as a company. Uh, but still, it felt like, you know, everybody else there had been there longer. Um, for me, I'd never worked at a, you know, streaming company as such. So it, it all felt like different and new. And I'd moved to the Silicon Valley for the first time in my life. Um, and so everything was different. But I think starting a company, since there was really nobody else for me to like delegate things to, you kind of have to do it yourself. Uh, what are you going to do? Like the option is to figure it out or fail. And you have to figure it out. And so I think just the pressure that comes with you have to do whatever it takes to make your company successful, uh, I think just makes you uh, switch into that mindset of like actually getting into solving problems and building that founder mindset. And it allows you to speak that language forever into the future. So whether it's I'm angel investing or, you know, we're acquiring this business or I'm, you know, now a senior executive talking to the founder of the, the company that I'm now part of, you have that that similar, you know, vein that you can tap into that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. I think so too. I think uh, you know, not to sound super presumptuous about it, but I think being an executive at other companies later on. Um, you kind of look at problems differently. For one, um, you have empathy when there are other founders, when you talk about acquisition or when you talk about partnerships, because you know what they are going through. You've been there. Two, I think uh, being an exec also means you kind of have this neat little capability to like look around the corners, look around the edges now, because you've kind of seen things from different perspectives. Um, you've seen failure and you've seen what it means to really um, be scrappy and do a lot with very minimal resources. And so I think that really sets you up because um, generally when people think about execs, um, they think, you know, oh, you have this infinite budget, you get to hire who you want, you get to scale these large teams. But I feel like the most successful execs are the ones who have been through, you know, spectacular disasters uh, big failures, having had to do a lot with very little and been able to like climb up the ranks and uh, just earn the success. And I feel like being a founder kind of gives you a shortcut to get there. And another interesting framework that I've only heard recently is this concept that as you ascend the, the ladder of seniority up to the highest of executive levels, basically the, the stakes of your decision-making are higher because the the time lag to correct a bad decision is slower. So an exec makes a bad decision and maybe it's six, 12 months to even, you know, get the boat turned. Whereas the, the junior developer writes a line of code wrong and they realize it two days later and they fix it. And it's, it's all the better to, to use like two ends of the spectrum in terms of how long those kind of decision-making impacts can be. In order to reach, you know, these executive type roles that you have in multiple large technology companies now, you've not only had to make good decisions, but you've had to convey to hiring managers, to team members that you were a good decision maker. And that sounds somewhat opaque, somewhat nebulous, but I'm curious 
how you've learned to convey to others, Hey, I'm a, I'm a good decision maker. You can trust me with the ball. I, I can handle, you know, this corner of the world with, you know, not, not perfect decision-making, but a high caliber of decision-making. Yeah. Well, um, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have just said, well, you know, you just have to like convince them. Like you just have to like show up and be your best self and really crush this interview. And you're there. Um, I feel like having been through this, uh, both, uh, you know, as an exec and as a person who's had to hire execs, um, I kind of come from a place where it's all about the right frameworks um, and being able to convince whoever is hiring you or in your, in, 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 if you are the one who's hiring another executive, having the right frameworks in place on like, what is it that you want them to do? Um, and so in my case, um, you know, like at Facebook, a lot of my strengths were about being a founder and building this business from scratch um, and learning from that. And so when I joined Facebook, my first job was to basically build this team from scratch uh, to do creator monetization, like payments infrastructure. And, you know, at that time, Facebook hadn't really done uh, payments from like people like you and me, like user payments as such. Um, and so my job was to basically start the team, which felt like an incredible fit, because one thing I really didn't want to do was to join a big company and have this really big organization that would be super slow to ship things and move along and all of that. And so um, all I had to do during the interview process was to basically convey to the hiring manager that I built companies from scratch and, uh, you know, the framework in which I was making decisions at these places. Okay, so we have this much runway. Uh, we needed to fundraise and this is what the, fun the run rate would like get us into. Uh, we had to set up a contract with Best Buy and this is how we went about doing it. And so all I had to do was convince uh, this team or this panel of people who were hiring me that these were the decisions I made through the course of building the company. And hence, I had the expertise to start something from scratch, even within a big organization. Um, and, you know, I could convince people to come join the team. I could work with engineers and build a product. I could work with the marketing team and sell the product or do go to market um, and set the overall strategy and basically run the ship. Um, and that's all I had to do. So for me, it was about like working in frameworks that the hiring team or the hiring manager could understand and resonate with and finding that gap. And, you know, it's similar to products which have product market fit. You kind of have to have the founder market fit, uh, you know, where you're looking at it going, am I a good fit for this business that I'm going to be running? Uh, and what is the skill set that they're looking at and finding that match? And if you have that, then it's magic because then, uh, you've solved this huge problem for them, which is to hire this person. And for you, you've just found happiness, basically. You found fulfillment in what you're looking at next because the last thing you want to do is find this role, interview for this role, and you join and you absolutely hate it. Like day one, you're looking at it going, oh God, I really regret doing this. And you just don't want to be in that position. So it's really about like finding that product market fit for yourself as an individual. That's interesting. So I've heard, obviously, the product market fit is, is common parlance in tech. And then in the kind of creator economy, there's um, audience creator fit, which mm -hmm. is, do I make the content that resonates with my audience? But yeah. I hadn't heard it in that terms of almost like 
I guess, employee company or, or kind of team member um, uh, company fit? That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, I think uh, when you're much more junior in your career, uh, honestly, like I just didn't have um, just the freedom and the flexibility to think about it that way. Because, you know, you basically are interviewing for roles and and when I started at Microsoft a year before I even graduated. And at that time, it just felt like, why would Microsoft hire somebody like me? Oh, my God, I just need to, like, sign this offer and join. So you never start, you never think about, like, role and fit for the role or things like that. You just feel like you're incredibly lucky. Um, I think later on in your career, when you have a few options and you have a specific set of skill set and expertise that you can offer and you have on the table, I think they, then you can start thinking about what does true happiness look like for you? Uh, what does the company really want? Is there like a fit there? And I think that just sets up both sides for success. Got it. So uh, in that sphere, we, we, we've alluded to the creator economy here. Uh, yeah. You host a show, The Good Time Show with your husband right. uh, that you know blew up during the pandemic. I remember yep. listening to it on Clubhouse. You'd have yep. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and literally like the who's who of the world of business. Um, and it's, you know, it's since, uh, expanded into video, it has these other elements to it, but at its, at its core, one of the big insights or, or, or uh, points of view is I would call tech optimism. Yes. And there's all sorts of, you, you read the right media outlets, you'll find all sorts of tech pessimism, but yours is really rooted in this tech optimism, which makes sense given your kind of career trajectory in these companies we've talked about you being at. But can you just take it down to basics to start things off here? about the origins of that tech optimism that you and Suram share. It is, and it has been an incredibly wild journey. That's, you know, I just wanted to put that out there because I've never seen myself as a creator. Um, I've always been, you know, a technologist. Um, I've started out as an engineer, written a bunch of code, uh, did project management, product management, founded tech startups, uh, sold them, you know, this is, you know, you've seen my resume. This is all entirely behind the laptop, the person who's like actually working on stuff. It's never in front of the camera. And so for me, um, I started uh, with a good time show. So Shriram and I, my husband, uh, who's now a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, we started the good time show uh, kind of in the thick of the pandemic. And we kind of thought, wouldn't it be fun to host a virtual dinner party? You know, through before the pandemic, we used to have uh, these tech folks. These were our friends. We live in San Francisco. We used to get them home for dinners. And, you know, we, we love doing that. We love having these conversations and debates about technology. And we kind of thought, oh, man, we really miss that. You know, no one's going to anyone's places anymore. We're not meeting in person anymore. Can we just do this virtually? And we started this on Clubhouse, which at that time, you know, I just heard about it. And I, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen uh, sent us an invite, which sounds really cool because he was like, you need to like join us, uh, join this uh, um, the startup and see, you know, just check out Clubhouse. And so I would like listen in and I would see people like Mark Andreessen and Naval and all these people like, you know, talk late into the night. And I was like, wow, this platform is cool. And you don't have to like, put on makeup and present yourself. It's just audio. It's great. Um, and so we kind of started this. 
show um, and uh, for the first month or so, it was really goofy. It was just me and Sriram with a bunch of friends uh, just talking about everything from how do you fundraise for your startup that you just started? How do you do performance reviews at tech companies? How do you hire your first engineer or first exec? Like these are very real problems that we were trying to solve on behalf of the audience and just like getting experts in and talking about it. Uh, and for us, a lot of it, the underlying theme, as you said, uh, was tech optimism. And by then, you know, it had become really fashionable uh, for media, like specific parts of media, to basically be very critical and cynical of technology. And for me, that was really surprising because tech, you know, to be fair, has its own set of criticisms. It's a lot of it, you know, it's, it's pretty fair with respect to, um, you know, how um, you know, a lot of the coverage I feel like is, is valid. And then there are some which just felt like disingenuous. It was just being critical, especially when it came to founders just about starting companies, uh, you know, or people who are just tinkering with ideas. And it just felt like, you know, it, it, it just felt like we were moving away from this place of being optimistic about technology. And that for us was a bit disturbing because for both me and Sriram, tech had given us everything. Our entire lives were, about, were built on uh, building tech companies, working for tech companies. You know, if it hadn't been for tech, um, I don't know what we would have done as a career path because we'd like learn to write code way early on in our lives. And, you know, generally we are very optimistic when it comes to technology solving really hard problems. Um, and so for us, we thought we never thought about this in that arc with the show, but there was always this underlying arc of like, we should bring builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and it doesn't have to be purely tech, but everyone who has a story to tell on things that they're building we want to bring them on our show. Um, and uh, and that's kind of how, you know, a month one after that, when we got comfortable with the show, we started bringing in people we knew, founders we knew, like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg came on the show and he was there twice, I think, talking about AR, VR and his experience there. You know, Mark, Mark is solving a really hard problem with respect to AR and VR um, that hasn't been like quite solved at that scale before. Um, and then it kind of really started blowing up. It was not just the tech folks. It also started bringing in people who were experts, builders, storytellers in the world of music and fashion and sports. Uh, we had people like Naomi Osaka come in, uh, Calvin Harris and Chainsmokers. And, um, you know, we had this big uh, NFT auction and people who had like just sold his $69 million artwork uh, to this anonymous bidders um, came on the show and that really blew up. And so we just had like one big moment after another. And, you know, just sitting behind the scenes and like doing this, it, it felt unreal. Like there were just these people reaching out every week being like, we want to come on your show. And part of us in our minds were like, why? Why do you like, you know, we're, we're not. And, and, and sometimes we would like listen into other people doing um, like tweeting about us or talking about us or other journalists covering us. And they'd be like, these people are not professional interviewers. Their questions are not great. And we're like, yes, we are not professional interviewers. We never thought we were like, you know, we'd kind of pinch ourselves every episode being like, this is unreal. Like, why do we get to talk to these people? I don't know. But, and it felt like a lot of these folks just wanted to have a really honest conversation about building. And I felt like they felt what we felt which was the world had gotten really cynical. 
and people had gotten uh, sarcastic about things that were being built. And I feel like this just felt like a breath of fresh air where they could just come in, like Virgil Abloh was there and he was talking about Off-White and the brand that he started and how he had built. And, and you know, it just felt really nice and refreshing to be on the show and just talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things from that answer. I just want to make sure I, I double click on. So one of those is this, my general framework with the kind of tech optimism, cynicism, and, and the criticism that are levied against it is uh, there are certain technology companies, a few of which you've, you've worked at in your recent uh, past, that yeah. are more like institutions given their scale, given their resources, yeah. and given the, you know, if, if there's 2 billion users or things like that, there's a, there's a slightly different standard that needs to, that they need to be held to. And that that is wildly different than the, you know, working out of someone's basement team yes. of three, trying to get something off the ground yep. that, you know, th the standards that that is held to just cannot possibly be the same. And anything that works to restrict or overly regulate or overly constrain those young upstarts is actually the thing that not only decreases innovation and opportunity for others, but also entrenches some of the problems of the big institutions because it's those young upstarts that will compete with them, that will, you know, challenge them to be different because of their, you know, novel ideas. The reason that Netflix is, you know, way bigger and has created so much consumer surplus is because they had a better model than Blockbuster and they had the ability to kind of come up from the the swampy use of startup land into the institution that they are now. And right. um, I, I don't know if you have any anything to build off of there, but there was a couple other points that I want to make. No, you're totally, totally right. I think that's exactly our point where it is incredibly hard to build something from scratch and scale it. I mean, the founder's journey is already so so hard um, you're, you're working against all these constraints and, and then for, you know, the world to look at it and be cynical and kind of destroy the company or destroy the idea, even before it kind of takes roots is very disheartening. And I feel like to your point, you know, these big companies that are now really massive only survived and succeeded because the world wasn't like looking at them and being cynical about them. And so we really wanted to give a space, like provide an opportunity for people to just come in and be like, oh, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm building this. Um, and just have these builders, tinkerers come in and tell their story. And then the ones who are super successful and who've done it before, like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, we wanted to kind of have this, this space where they could come in and say, it is possible to be us. It is possible to be successful. Um, my favorite example is uh, we had the Coinbase CEO and the Coinbase exec team, Brian Armstrong and his team, show up on IPO day. Uh, and, you know, this company had been through so much. They'd been through, quote unquote, crypto winters, you know, these like deep, dark, depressive eras where nobody believed in crypto. And, uh, and they'd survived it. You know, the company had almost died and come back to life a couple of times. It's like almost a decade-long company. And they had made it. They had gone public. And for a second, just think about that. Like, you are a founder who basically sits in your bedroom with a laptop and starts this company based on this idea. Nearly a decade later, you're there. Like, after many near deaths, you're there. And the company has gone public. And what an incredible moment that was. And so we kind of, we got the whole team to come in uh, on our show and you could see it, you could just be 
in that room and hear it in their voices. They were so happy. They were exhausted because it's this all day and week long roadshows and guessing just leading up to this like big IPO day. And, and, and to be honest, they were kind of drunk. And so it just felt like such a great moment to be a part of. And for me and Sridham, it just felt, it felt like, goodness, like we wanted to be here in this room and everyone to like get inspired by these founders, like telling their story. So um, I, I just feel really lucky to be uh, in these conversations and to be able to like host these rooms because our jobs are easy. We just have to like get this whole setup and have like the, you know, the URL for people to click on and join. Like right now the show is on YouTube and it's just easy to do our jobs, but it's really hard to build something and come in on the show and be able to tell the story. So we love it. We love hosting these conversations. And success leaves clues. That's the beauty of this media environment is you can hear from all these people that have done it in some way, shape or form yeah. versus like, I can't even imagine it, 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 there was, there's way fewer, but the successful entrepreneurs of like the 1910s, you know, maybe they wrote an autobiography after everything had occurred. Like it wasn't yeah. like the day of their biggest deal that they've ever closed yeah. hopping drunk onto a, a live social audio app. Yeah, I mean, now it's possible, now it's doable, and uh, why not take advantage of that? Like, we live in the best time, technologically speaking, in the history of mankind, so it's it's really up to us to take advantage of it and tell these stories. And, and it's also a really wild time because of the, you know, whether it's, it's Moore's Law or whatever, things we want to attribute to this amazing amount of change as it pertains to some of the technical tools and just the, 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 the technology that is at people's fingertips these days, my smartphone yep. here, you know, never yep. more than a couple feet from my, my hip. Um, and one of the interesting things I actually had an experience this past week in Arthi where I was, uh, at a, a golf outing with my dad and with some of his friends and I was trying to explain what I do and what we do is, is relatively <laughs> straightforward. We're an agency, we produce media, um, and there's technology involved. We've got you know, obnoxiously expensive cameras and, you know, lavalier mics and, and other items like that. But I see myself, you know, in the, in the realm of media person and, and this show, this is media that's being produced here. But when I try to translate that, the the response that I get from, from some of his friends of, of that generation is, well, you're, you're a technologist, you're a tech guy, huh? <laughs> and so... I, I shudder to think that any that I would ever you know wear that hat. I'd feel like a fraud because I can barely write a line of code. You've been writing code since you were thirteen, yeah. and so there's this really interesting dynamic of the 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 medium in which any sort of media is produced is highly defined by technology. There, there's mm -hmm. a before and after the invention of radio, right? There's a before and after the, the normalization of TV sets being in, in most households. Uh, similarly, there's a before and after smartphones were, you know, introduced by Steve Jobs and, and that yeah. generation of, of entrepreneurs. So when you, uh, I don't even know exactly how, to, how, how you want to respond to that, but um, wh where does your mind go given that kind of setup? I, yeah, I think uh, I think Mark Andreessen wrote this memo years ago, I think probably a decade ago, where he said, you know, software is eating the world. And that was kind of this rallying cry, uh, at least for, you know, people who were in Silicon Valley, or in our case, I think we were just about moving from Seattle to San Francisco. Um, and, you know, it's, it's for me, it was really hard to not read that and get inspired uh, to, you know, just think about it as, wow, like everything is going to be software-based. And now it sounds just like ridiculous to say that because everything 
does run on software. Like, it, you know, you don't say it's not a thing anymore. Like, yes, everything is running on software. And so I think uh, to what your dad had said, I think all of us are going to be in technology, whether we write code or not, um, you know, whether, uh, and I, I'm, I think we already are in tech for the most part. And the few areas and the few people who are not directly connected to tech, I think pretty soon are going to get involved in some way where uh, we are all going to be technologists. The degree of how much technology or the the bells and whistles you actually know or the deep infrastructure you really know is going to vary. But for the most part, we are all going to be technologists as such because we're going to have to understand um, you know how to put together systems in place to be able to launch your podcast or build something from scratch. And so I think you're going to have to like learn something there with, that is technologically related, um, whether you're like you believe that you're a true techie, quote unquote, or not. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's one of those things where I, I'm always. Identity is an interesting question, right? So, so at yeah. one point you identified as a, as a product manager. At one t- point you identified as the founder. Now you identify as the angel investor. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, you want to draw the right kind of parallels and models. I, I, I don't, I don't, I think there's a tendency in, in media to like, you know, get a little big, big for your britches and oversell mm-hmm. where you actually stand things. So I'm always trying to try to be careful to not over uh, indulge in that. But at the same time, there's also the aspiration, like, like your story of, you know, just continuing to climb to, to greater and greater heights and, and greater and greater challenges is like, you know, that, that balancing act that we all have to play. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just happen to be really lucky. Um, you know, I think uh, now I have two kids now and I think about um, what they will pick up as skill set when they are young and uh, for me, it just happened that I picked a specific set of skill sets, and Shriram and I talk about this a lot, where we um, picked up these skill sets, which were in high demand later, when by the time we graduated, uh, there was a growing market for it. Um, you know, it wasn't like, I don't know, if it, I think uh, Shriram used to say at some point he wanted to be a train driver. And I don't know how big a market that was going to be. Uh, and so in our case, you know, it just happened that learning to write some code and learning to build uh, technological products was always going to be a growing market. And we didn't know that when we were kids. Uh, and so we just ended up being really lucky, just picking things that um, we love doing, but would also like scale over time and uh you know, help us like find jobs and have this lifestyle and all of that stuff. So it just worked itself out. So I think for me, um, I think everyone's going to be a technologist if they already aren't. Um, I think that line is just going to get super blurry over time. Um, Like, you know, when you look at creator economy and uh, creators as such, are they technologists or not? I would say they are because the amount of work that you need to like put in to figure out how to build really good content and putting together a content strategy, uh, thinking about viral loops, thinking about how to, you know, now that we've like done the show, I now think about this as a media setup. And it's a lot of thinking about, uh, you know, we talked about the creator audience fit and finding that. And so I think um, there is a lot of like engineering involved. Uh, and technology involved, whether you think about it actively that way or not. So I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's great that you know everyone's going to think about technology more and be involved in it more because the more people who think about tech actively, I think we can all start building things that's going to help solve our own problems. 
I dig that. So as a parent and a tech optimist, you know, there's some people, they, they limit the screen time to whatever, an hour per day. Yeah. They, there's some people say, you know, absolutely nothing um, or, you know, heave ho. What, what is your uh, framework? What do you, how do you think about that as a parent? Oh my goodness. I have no good advice here. It's just, <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I, I think the one thing I have, we talked about this right before we started the show uh, is to have empathy for other parents um, because I think before I became a parent, it was really easy to like be judgmental and be like, oh, look at them, like giving their iPads to this kid at this restaurant. That's terrible. Now I look at it in a completely different light. Um, and I think um, it's, it's just really easy to judge because I think you don't really understand what the parents have gone through. And not I don't mean this in like a medium, long term kind of what have they been through in life? I mean, this like, have they got a night's sleep? Uh, yes. you know, have they been able to like grab a bite to eat before feeding the kids? You know, it's like your, your, your scope becomes so tactical, um, that you kind of have empathy on a very microscopic nature. And I think it's just, um, I don't judge. And for me as a parent, I think about screen time. Um, uh, my daughter who's three years old now, uh, we think about it as we have books that we want to read. And for some reason, the things that she wants to watch on YouTube are other people reading books too. And so it's, oh, it's just, it's bizarre because I would read the same book and then she would like watch somebody reading that book on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, great. Okay. I guess that like counts for book reading. So we're still at the phase where she hasn't figured out how diverse YouTube content can get um, and how she can watch all kinds of things like, you know, different cartoons and stuff. So we aren't quite there yet. So I'm lucky so far. But once she figures it out, I have to get advice from everybody else on how to how to just like find that right balance and trade off there. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things, though, about like this this time and how different it is yeah. in the sense that like I can remember like I had my stack of VHS like movies that yes, I could watch. Yeah. And so my parents and like there wasn't parental controls. It was like it's going to be like Gilligan's Island or you know three <laughs> other like very vetted and approved pieces of media that be, can be consumed. And meanwhile, it's like, like you're saying, the diversity of options on YouTube can get uh, pretty wild, pretty quick. So uh, tip of the cap to the, the uh, challenges ahead in that domain. And uh, thank you for, for spending some time with us today, talking through all this. Arthi, uh, before we ask our standard last two questions, anything else that you were hoping to share today that I just didn't give you the chance to? Oh, I think, uh this was great. I feel like we covered a lot in such a short time. I think, uh, uh, you know, if you haven't heard us before, you should you know, listen to the Good Time Show. Um, it truly is, uh, you know, people coming in and having optimistic conversations about building, about technology, uh, about telling your story. Uh, we are now on YouTube, so you just have to search for Good Time Show or look up my name. Um, and yeah, we'd love any feedback, any comments that you might have. We're just getting started on YouTube, so videos in new format. Um, Aaron, I have to take cues from you. You're such a good interviewer. You just get into telling a really awesome story in such a short amount of time, which I'm still getting the hang of. So thanks for just like having me on the show and uh, letting me just be a part of this. Of course, it was my pleasure. And uh, you've had some fantastic interviews with some fantastic guests. So don't sell yourself short there. Uh, I'm going to encourage everyone to check that out. The digital coordinates for the YouTube channel will be in the show notes. Uh, you're on Twitter as well. Anywhere else you want to direct people? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, 
I'm just RTR. It's my first name, last in the show, um, and the, the Good Time Show on YouTube. Right on. Uh, yeah, we'll link that all in the show notes in the app. You're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Arthi, before I let you go, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Okay. I thought about this during the show. Um, thanks for giving me a heads up there. I, you know, I be just going back to the good time show. I would encourage everybody listening to the show to go build something for yourself. And that would mean you can go build a website that you want. You can go, you know, build something that's like with your hands, like something physical. Uh, it's, it's really up to you on what you want to go build. But I feel I found I found it incredibly gratifying to go build stuff for myself. And, and this is not like a part of your job. This is not like a big business that you want to set up, but just something that could be really small that you build for yourself just for the fun of it. Because I feel like we've kind of lost touch with things like, you know, what do you do as a hobby and just having some free time. So go build something for yourself. Um, and I hope you find joy in just like through the process of building it. I love that. And I think it's also like, I, I, I touched on identity earlier in this conversation where if it, you make it into this thing, where like I'm documenting every single step of the process as I, you don't have to do that. You can just yeah. make it like you can just go in your backyard and garden. You can just go try to fix this thing in your house. You can yep. just go code a website and not share the URL with anyone just to see if you can build the thing. Yes, uh, you exactly. Have, you have Arthi's permission. <laughs> That's right. Just go build. And, you know, it's just it's so joyous to go build stuff. And I think we've just forgotten it, it's just, it, everything's become work now. And I want you to separate building things from your work and your identity and, you know, documenting, as you said, and all of that. Just go build something and be like grubby with your hands for a, for a bit and see what happens. I absolutely love it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go take it this evening uh, after I'm done with my work day, and I hope that everyone out there listening will as well. Arthi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Aaron, thank you so much for having me here. This was great. We just went deep with Arthi Ramamurthy. Over out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Arthi. If you enjoyed it, then I would encourage you to also check out our recent past interview with John Shanahan from Strix. We talk about marketing, CPG, men's cosmetics, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.